Welcome to the latest episode of Season 2 of Footballing Covered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn, Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. Heard about extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season, we've been delving inside eight more Premier League clubs, as well as having two special episodes. One about the future of club football at the highest level, and this one about life after the Premier League, outside of it, and what a painful experience it's been for so many clubs. I am your host, Will Brazier, and every episode I'm joined by Sporting Intelligence's Nick Harris. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks. I'm looking forward to this because although there's uh, lots of upsides to the Premier League, there, there are downsides and this is kind of a salutary lesson about what can go wrong after the money stops. Well, it's something I've experienced, you've experienced at Southampton and our guest has Chris Weatherspoon, a Sunderland fan who is an accountant by day but who, in, in his own words, blathers on about sport and Sunderland. Chris does this on the Wise Men Say podcast and has also written extensively on the Wise Men Say website as well as for 442, The Economist and When Saturday Comes. Chris, how are you? Sunderland, how did it happen? How did it happen? Uh, I think I've got like a long line of ancestors to blame for it. Um, Basically, I went to my first ever game when I was six years old and I was addicted from then on. And I'm, I'm really not sure why to this day. What happened in that game? They, they won, which was obviously <laughs> like, a, it was in the Premier League as well. They won, they won 1-0 against, um, against Coventry City, and um, which is obviously what you, what you need to rope in a young six-year-old and um, never looked back since. I think we're going to be talking about a little bit more about the doom and gloom today, but what has been the greatest day for you as a Sunderland fan? I was having to think about this and it's... Um, it's really slim pickings, to be honest. I think, <laughs> not sure if we can say like full day, but I, I think the greatest moment I can remember, and anybody watching on TV probably not even really remember it. I'm not sure if any of you remember. We played at Old Trafford in a League Cup semi final about seven years ago now. Um, and there was one minute of extra time left. Phil Bardsey hits one from outside the box, and David De Gea should be able to just drop his cap on us, and that should be game over. But I mean, and this and this is how Sunderland it is. Really, it wasn't it wasn't like a screamer in the top corner. He literally fumbled it into the net. There was nine thousand of us down there. Everyone went wild, and um, we hadn't even finished celebrating. Actually, by the time United had gone up the other end and scored and took it to penalties, but we uh, we won arguably the worst penalty shootout you've ever seen. Nothing. I think in terms of moments and like in terms of like you know that like that buzz you get from football. The reason we all follow it, I think, I think probably then. Love that. Um, Nick, before I get to you, I was actually at the scene of Sunderland's uh, greatest modern day achievement recently down at Wembley for the Papa John's Trophy win. Um, a great day for the club. Spoke to Luco 9 after. Um, ate a tuna pizza. I mean, absolutely fantastic <laughs> day. What are sort of your connections, Nick? Uh, none aside from covering uh, Sunderland on and off as a reporter for 25 years. I spent a lot of weekends at the Stadium of Light over the years. Um, back to the Howard Wilkinson era. I liked Howard when I got to know him a lot more than maybe he's a fascinating guy, much more interesting when you get to know him a bit than than perhaps his external exterior would tell you. Mick McCarthy, Roy Keane, Martin O'Neill, Gus Poyer, Dick Avocado. I mean, there's been some big managers there actually at, at, at the point when they were a, a Premier League mainstay club. But arguably the manager I covered most explosively was uh, Paolo Di Canio, in spring 2013. So I don't know what you remember of that area, Chris. We were kind of like 
the old phrase like sleepwalking to relegation under Martin O'Neill. And I remember we um it was a Saturday lunchtime kickoff and we lost to Manchester United, which in, in itself isn't a particularly bad result. Um most people did then. And um but it, it was just really there was there was no life in the performance. And, and I remember sitting in the pub with some friends on Saturday evening, they came across that they'd sacked Martin O'Neill's. So it was like, oh, okay. And then it came through that they were very likely to hire Paolo De Canio. And it was, <laughs> can't remember much of the night after that, put it that way. And then I think, yeah, it was very strange. There was a very, and this is something I think we might touch on later in the podcast, but there was a very us against them mentality that the club kind of tried to engender when um, De Canio came in. But I think he just, he didn't have the kind of humility you needed to be a, to be a decent manager. And I think, it's pretty telling that he hasn't had a job since. Exactly. I mean, that was a chaotic period, but unfortunately for you as Sunderland fans, there's been quite a lot of chaos. I mean, what, I mean what it's else absolutely you ridiculous, in- to be honest. <laughs> sometimes you sometimes wonder and you're like, am I being like a bit self-centered here? Is it just our club? But increasingly, I think, yeah, it is just our club at times. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was funny actually when you when you mentioned Howard Wilkinson. Um, I mean, Kevin Kyle, like our ex-striker, tells this story far better than I ever could. But there's a story about when Howard Wilkinson was scrapping around for results and sat the players down to watch a video. And this was back in 2003, so I have this image of, can you remember the the old box videos that you had at school where they'd wheel them in? And um, and Kevin Kyle tells the story that they were like, oh, well, he's going to put on Barcelona or something here. And what he actually put on was geese flying in formation. And... <laughs> <laughs> and the idea was to show that like one can fall out of line, but if the rest stick together, we can all do it as a team. And yeah, well, I mean, it worked because we went down with a record low points. To all this, he, so. He's a really, he's a really interesting guy. He's actually a really, really cerebral guy. He's he's fascinated by military history. I spent a weekend on the Somme with uh, Howard Wilkinson uh, in <laughs> in <I> mean. uh, <laughs> 2014, the centenary of the of the beginning of the First World War. <laughs> The football family, that is the Premier League, uh, the Football League, uh, the FA, various officials sort of took um, a a military history tour of the Somme, uh, looking at the involvement of footballers in the First World War. And Howard was on that. And it was absolutely fascinating. uh, Greg Dyke was also on the the bus. So I was sitting next to Greg Dyke and Howard was sitting behind us and we were chatting about all sorts of things. He had some great stories from when he was manager at um, Leeds. Um, you know, he managed Eric Cantona at Leeds. Uh, really, really interesting guy. You know, hinterland way outside football. So his geese video doesn't surprise me at all. Love that. Um, the Premier League, I think we all agree that we all want to be in it. Um, but Nick, how dangerous can it be when you're out of it, especially if you've been to the promised land and, and you come away from it? The thing about the Premier League is because it's been such a phenomenal success and it has attracted all this money, the money is concentrated within that division now in English football. The vast majority of all the money in English football is in the Premier League. So it's become spectacularly successful around the world. It, it draws in viewers from more than 200 countries and the broadcasters in that, those countries pay more than £1.2 billion every season. And when you add in domestic TV rights from Sky and BT Sport and Amazon, you're looking at £3 billion just in TV revenues a year before a ticket is sold, before a pie is sold, before a, a shirt sponsorship deal is done. So there's enormous wealth concentrated in the Premier League and everyone aspires to have a piece of that wealth. Obviously, when you then fall out of that division, you've suddenly cut off from that wealth largely and in really simple terms you go from having everything to having very little and there's so there's an enormous abyss and we've had 
a load of clubs since the beginning of the Premier League in 1992-93 who've fallen out and endured all kinds of horror stories. But let's get back to Sunderland because just to sort of see the effect of what relegation can do to you aligned with you know, chaotic ownership or turbulent ownership. I think Sunderland is a great case study, which is why, you know, it's great that we've got Chris with us today. Under Ellis Short, he took control in September 2008 and had nine consecutive seasons in the Premier League, mostly in the lower half, but finishing as high as 10th in 2010-11 and then finished bottom in 2016-17 and went down. Earlier, I sent you over the summary of of the ownerships, the division, the managers. Um it's big chaos, really, Chris, hasn't it? Do you want to sort of sum up for us what's happened since going down under Ellis Short in 2016-17? It's just been an absolute disaster, to be honest. <laughs> um, it's Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, it, it doesn't really kind of start with um, getting relegated. There were big warning signs there anyway, as like the, the list of managers we just went through kind of showcases. Like we, um, prior to... Jack Ross, when he came in in League One, I think he he was the first manager who'd started and ended a season at Sunderland since Steve Bruce nearly a decade earlier. And that's not really a recipe for success. And it's certainly not a recipe for kind of building anything. And um, yeah, I mean, we stayed up under, under Sam Allardyce and I think a lot of people felt, oh, well, we're going to get this right. Um, like Allardyce is the right guy for the club. And, and it did feel like it. He, he used to play for the club. He gets... He understands it, and um, and then Harry Kane took some corners for England, and the rest is history. So, but the the thing that kind of goes under the radar a bit is that even before England came calling, Allardyce was um, said to be a bit disgruntled behind the scenes about like what the club's plans were for like backing him in the transfer market and going forward. So there is a chance that just like Dick Advocate before him. Um, that he would have walked away anyway. So there, there were like deep-rooted issues. And the real problem came was that someone spent hundreds of millions of pounds, like wasted an awful lot of money. Ella Short um, put in a lot of his own money and ostensibly wasted it. But, but the problem was that as soon as we dropped out, um, dropped out of the Premier League, the drawbridge was sort of pulled up. Like, I think if you look at our spending in the summer that we went down, we sold Jordan Pickford for... 30 million pounds, we sold a few other, and I think we already spent about a million pounds going the other way. And I think, I mean, this story is particularly well known to a whole audience well outside the Sunderland fan base because, of course, of the, the Netflix documentary Sunderland Till I Die, which captured that 17 18 season, the first season after relegation. Now, I'm guessing that that um, the idea from Sunderland's point of view and from Ellis Short's point of view is we'll agree to do this as we catalogue week by week a glorious return to the Premier League <laughs> at the first attempt. I mean, that, that must be the logic of giving that kind of access. And what actually happens is that, I mean, to call him the star of the show is probably not the right term, but, but Martin Bain, you know, did become a figure at the centre of that story. As one review of, of the season said, described him as the star of the show, but probably not in a good way. It was hard to fulfil the role he did in the series without looking like a bit of a tit, but the David (laughs) Brent comparisons were unavoidable. Between the tight shirts, espresso machine and meaningless business rhetoric, he was a joy. I mean, so many of us have seen that series. I thought it was really, really good from the the opening bars of the theme tune uh, by the late poets, which is an absolutely magnificent song, to the way that the whole thing was put together. It was great viewing, but it was great viewing from the neutral because it was such a car crash. Chris Coleman actually comes across as a really 
nice, likeable guy in a really difficult position. What What are your memories of that chaotic season, which obviously I think it was about May by the time the deal is done to sell to Stuart Donald and his consortium. What are your memories of that chaotic season? To be honest, it was, it was one of those where you felt like we were always kind of on the edge, but it it was never a reality until until it happened, if you know what I mean, like under, under Simon Grusin. I mean, Simon Grusin may hold the unenviable record of being the only permanent Sunderland manager never to win a home game um, because he, I think he had 15 games in charge total and of the one that he won, um, that was away from home. So um, it got off to a very bad start in, in that respect, but it, it was a season of near misses. There was the odd kind of like thrashing sort of thing, but it was often... It was often like one goal defeats, and and we just we just couldn't defend really. We had um, an aging John O'Shea who who was actually a great great term for the club and that, but it it was very much him kind of trying to beat back, and it just it just spiraled like out of control. And Coleman came in, and it was always like you always felt, oh well, if if we if we win today, it's going to get a run together, and it just it just didn't happen. And and I remember when when we did eventually go down that day against Burton. Um, I mean, obviously, it shows on the documentary, but we were one 0 up with like five minutes to go, and then within ten minutes' time, we've conceded twice. And the whole farcical element of it was that even as you left the ground, people weren't a hundred percent sure that we'd been relegated. And I think I was trying to remember this um, last night, but I think it, I think the situation was that the way the fixtures were that if if you looked at the league table, um, it looked like mathematically we could still stay up, probably on goal difference, but with the teams that had to play each other, they were guaranteed to pick up a certain amount of points such that um, we were relegated. So um, it was quite numbing. Like, I think it wasn't just two bad seasons that dropped someone in League One. Like, a lot of the time in the Premier League, um, we spent the vast majority of the time in the relegation zone. Like, there was, there was a start where we went something like five or six years without winning in the months of August and September. So you're always starting on the back foot. And I always remember actually when they did get relegated that day against Burton, the club obviously knew what was coming and they, they had a statement prepared and it said something about saying, this is more than a football club. And, and it was true. And that's what, I know it's a cliche, but that's what a lot of people who like follow the club in Sunderland feel like. And, but for someone to actually say that, it was like, well, finally somebody, like the people on the pitch plainly haven't noticed and too many people in the background making decisions plainly haven't noticed. So that was quite refreshing. And But I think, like I say, the, the, the problem with it was is people were past the point of anger at that point. And it was it was apathy. And in my opinion, anyway, apathy is considerably more dangerous because what, what happens then is, going by what you said earlier, Nick, people are less likely to come back. Yeah. What was it like as a Sunderland fan to, to watch the, the Netflix documentary and f- have so many people raving about it being good entertainment? Because I imagine if I was a fan of that club and it had been catalogued in such sort of such detail, because I, obviously I didn't follow Sunderland day in, day out. So watching that a year later or whatever it was when it actually came out, I'm still thinking, oh, I'm trying to remember what happens next. How many games do you lose? As a fan, are you watching that and enjoying it at all? Are you watching it thinking, oh my God, this is terrible, or, or are you just not watching it? Because as a piece of entertainment for, for someone outside that situation, it's quite gripping. Yeah, so I think, and we're talking about the first series here, but I think it's important to like point out that the, there is, definitely among Sunderland fans, there's a real distinction between the first series of Sunderland Until I Die and the second series. So the, the first series came out 
just before Christmas um, in the first season in League One. Yeah. Now we we were in the top two. Then we had new ownership who we believed were were genuine, nice guys, communicating to us on a level, doing the best for the club, rooting out all the bad influences, and the general buzz around the place was great. And so, even though what the first series showed on the pitch was obviously dreadful, the first series also focused a lot on the fans and the, like the Pete, the taxi driver, for example. He's like. Yeah. He's like kind of the, the hidden gem of the series who came out and like, so it focused on that. So it was something that people, myself included, were, were proud of. And you could look at it and go, well, yeah, that was terrible, but it but it's different now. So so it's fine. We can look back at this and say, oh, thank, thank goodness we're past that. And now, I'm, like, because it's given us what we have now. Uh, the second series <laughs> feelings aren't quite the same on that. Yeah, I mean, season two, of course, introduced us to the double act of Stuart Donald and uh, Charlie Methven. And if Martin Bain was the David Brent of season one, then Charlie Methven became the breakout star of season two. In terms of Sunderland and the Stuart Donald takeover, Chris, can you talk us through what they said they were doing when they first came in, in terms of the deal? in terms of funding and ambition versus what they were actually doing, which in reality ended up to be a, what was in effect a leveraged takeover. Yeah. I mean, the one way to look at it and obviously people weren't really paying attention to this at the time, myself included, but a week before the actual takeover was announced, um, bear in mind this takeover was announced before due diligence was completed. So, um, which, which is probably not the way to do things in a business transaction. But um, a week before that, um, there must have been rumours down in Eastleigh about it, and Stuart Donald was interviewed about um, whether he was involved in taking over some of his, his words were, um, the level of investment uh, would be comparable to what he put into Eastleigh, which he said at the time was £10 million. And, but he said, it's not my deal. I've just been asked to be a make-weight in a financial deal now. My understanding of it is is that that was the case. Um, there was a there was a Spanish group who were who were interested, and Donald was going to come on board as part of that. And now something happened in the next eight days, and it depends who you who you talk to. Um, what I'm led to believe is that basically the Spanish group looked at it and said, "No, this this thing is a complete mess. We're we're getting out." Um, but anyway, I'm. Um, the week after we'd been relegated against Burton, uh, the club makes an announcement saying um, Stuart Donald and the consortium of international businessmen are going to take over the club. Ella Short said like the, the club's debts have been wiped completely. The club at the time was in around about £160 million worth of debt. About 90 of that was due to Short. About 70 of that was to like an, extra, an American bank who were charging in the region of about I think it was about six or seven million pounds a year in interest. So that's a pretty sizable sum. There were signs from the off. I mean, a month into um, into their reign, the Times ran a piece saying that we that they'd been entertaining taking out a short term loan. Now then, they didn't actually do it at that time, but um, Stuart Donald actually came out and confirmed that it was true. That yeah, we're, we're looking into it. And the question had to be: um, bear in mind, he said on his first day that. Um, <laughs> he'd shown the EFL he had fifty million pounds ready, ready and willing to put into something. The question had to be, well, why are you already scratching around for money? And I mean, as as we'll go into, it, it became readily apparent that they, they didn't have the money that they needed to certainly not to do the job um in a manner 
just hitting the club. So to be clear, I mean, he claimed he had to show the EFL the £50 million pounds that he, t- he basically said, I've got 50 million quid. He also said, I can look after this club in the championship and potentially beyond, depending on how well the money is spent. So on the one hand, he's saying, we've got 50 million quid. We're going to spend 40 million on buying it. But the reality was they put in a few million or a very small percentage of that 50 million and then instead used the parachute payments of 35 million or thereabouts to repay Ellis Short. So in other words, they came in without very much money and used the club's parachute payments to pay off Ellis Short and had nothing really of any significance to run the club on on a day-to-day basis. So in other words, they blagged it. Yeah, essentially. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is if if Sunderland DFC hadn't been in receipt of parachute payments that season, there's no way they would have bought, they could have bought the club. Now, the other issue and kind of untruth um, that that was spread at the time was that they were the only guys ready and willing to take on the club. I don't want to jump too far ahead here because obviously the full tale didn't come out until over a year later. But that was then the defence that they came out with. Like we were the only people willing to take the risk and that. Arguable, there was minimal risk there because they're using the club's money, but um, it's also not true. There was, and I can't go into the details, but there was a group who were ready to buy the club after that championship season finished. Now, Ella Short would not have got essentially, Ella Short got 15 million and then 25 million to go and spend on existing debt. So, if we assume um, that he'd resigned himself to writing everything off, kind of thing he's basically getting 40 million quid there. Whereas under this other deal, he wasn't going to get that. So the only reason these guys got the club and the reason it was announced before due diligence was complete was because it was the best deal on the table for him, like comfortably. Like now that's not me saying that him writing off the rest of the debt wasn't a good thing. It clearly was, but the fact of the matter is Ellis Short made an awful lot of bad decisions while in charge of some of the FC and his final one was arguably the worst of the lot because he allowed a group of people who plainly didn't have the funds necessary to run the club to the standards, certainly that we expected and what that I would argue the club required um, because it gave him the most money. So talk us through that 18-19 season. Again, it, it, ostensibly it was quite a good season, finished fifth in League One to get into the playoffs. You get to the playoff final and ultimately it comes down to a single kick of the ball in the end, the whole shooting match, doesn't it? And arguably the, the future of the club after that. But what was it like? This this was the season two of Sunderland Till I Die that introduced us to this double act of Stuart Donald and, and Charlie Methven. And actually... To outsiders, they, they could come across, uh, okay, yeah, so Method came across as a bit of a plonker, but not unsympathetic characters, actually, as that season went on. But what was it like as a fan in that playoff? I don't want to open old wounds or, or see you sobbing on the podcast, Chris, but... Uh, I'm, could... I'm all cried out over the last five years, <laughs> But if fine. you could just give us a flavour of that season... And you know what, and this is where we have to be careful, like not to rewrite history. The vast majority of the season was good. It was... Um, they, as I say, like looking back now, you can see warning signs, you can see concerning things that, and I was guilty of it too, to kind of get brushed under the carpet because you're like, this is a new door, like we're winning games for once, which is definitely a rare thing for some. And um, and no, it, it was good. We were hovering around the top two for the vast majority of the season. We got to, we went to Wembley for the Checker Trade final, which I still think it's a ridiculous competition, but actually it was it was a good weekend. It was it was a nice weekend where there wasn't you weren't 
just as well in the end because we did lose on penalties, but you weren't overly concerned about the result. It was like a weekend to kind of enjoy together, like with loads of fans and stuff. And but the wheels just like really badly came off. And the problem they had, and again, this is this is in some until I die. They had Josh Madra, um, who was comfortably too good for the division. Now, now I think a lot of blame should lie with the previous owner and Martin Bain because really this lad, he should have been tied down straight away. There were glimpses of it in the championship that he was good enough. Um, but then we get it, we get it the league one. And I don't know for definite, I don't know that he would have actually been the preferred starting striker. We, we signed Charlie White that season and he, but he signed injured. Um, so in an alternate reality, Josh Manger, um is still at some and haven't just broken into the team this season or something. I don't know, but it became pretty clear that he was like vital to to our chances of going up. And um, the problem they had was his, his contract was going to run out at the end of the season. Now, from my perspective, and I think from a few others, this was when kind of alarm bells started ringing because whatever went on with, with contracts or whatever contract negotiations, we got to just before January and Josh Manager still hasn't signed a contract extension. So you're looking and thinking, well, We've got two options here. If, if he's not going to sign one, we either sell him now or we keep him in the hope that he gets us promoted. And really any money that you make now is probably more than offset by what you'll make if you get promoted. And what happened was actually like, I think it was four days after Christmas. Yeah, we, we played Shrewsbury Town at home and in the aftermath, Charlie Methvin, who, as we've seen, can never resist a microphone, went and said... Um, basically put an ultimatum on the table and said, he's got until next week uh, to sign a contract or that's it sort of thing. And so you're like, well, the thing was it was, and we haven't really mentioned, but, and I don't think these actually made it in the documentary. We had two players in Papi Gilabodji and Didier and Dong, who essentially got sacked from Sunland for, for gross misconduct. And the, the basically the, the contracts got torn up. They refused to come back to training and that was a bit of a win for Stuart Dolan and Charlie Messer because it meant they could get these huge earners off the wage bill, but they didn't have to pay to do it. And the ball was very much in their court. Look, they breached their contract, so they let them go. I don't know whether it went to their heads or not, but the problem was now with Madger, they were trying to strong arm him, but the ball was very much in Madger and his agent's court. Like He could go anywhere he wanted. He, he's, he's the one scoring the goals. He's the one who you need to pay more to keep a hold of him. Now this... Deadline that was set came and went. Josh Mandrick kept playing. So, so they didn't even stick to that. And then what eventually happened was by, I think a week before the transfer deadline, they, they sold him to um, Bordeaux. Now, it, I think they even admitted at the time that when they sold him to Bordeaux, it kind of offset money that Sunderland owed Bordeaux for when they bought Wabi Kazri. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to work out why he ended up going to Bordeaux. And obviously, on the pitch, that's a worry because we've just sold our really our only strike because White got injured again and barely played, and uh, we didn't really have anyone else. So I think the other problem as well is they they built this kind of I don't want to say aura, but they built this like mentality amongst a lot of fans, and like I say, they they got some fanzines on side, which was basically saying they could do no wrong. Like I found out to my own detriment that if you queried something or you suggested that they weren't being entirely truthful of what they were saying, that the backlash was quite strong. And three or four days before that playoff final, 
the Daily Mail ran a story which basically said what we discussed and what has ultimately come out and said that in the first instance, they only put in £5 million of their own money. Now, they have put in more since, that is true, but if you think about it, that the football club then, at, at a point in time, was significantly down on the amount of money that the, the club should have enjoyed. It's not even just a case of, oh, well, we'll borrow that now and we'll pay it back later on. The club needed that money then. We sold off a lot of academy players, for example, when they first came in, which at the time was kind of looked at as seen, well, we can't keep hold of them. But actually now you look and you think, well, the likely reason we were selling them was because the club needed the money more than anything else. And now the Daily Mail put a story out about four days before the playoff final or three days before the playoff final. The problem with the timing of that was that it was three days before playoff final. So fans automatically go, well, why are you printing this now? You're just trying to disrupt us. You try and put us off, off Sunday kind of thing. The owners latched onto that and basically said, yes, that, that's why they're doing it. They said they were suing the Daily Mail, said it was libelous, this, that, and the other. And so even when the kind of the web was unraveling, they were still getting defended in, in a lot of quarters because there was a way to make it as like an us versus them thing. And really that season on the pitch was relatively successful until the end of April. And that helped massively because it was only in the following season when results really took a nosedive that the wider fan base started thinking, hang on, what's going on here? And I think, sorry, I know I'm rambling a bit here, but I think, um, I think that's, a natural pitfall that like football supporters can fall into because like most people follow football, myself included, most people follow football not for like numbers on a spreadsheet, but they, they follow it to watch their team win. So for a lot of people, because of the profession, I mean, I can't help myself, but for a lot of people, it's like, well, if we're winning, I don't really care what's going on sort of thing yeah. because if we're winning, we're going to progress and there's going to be nothing to worry about. But when the winning stops and there's nothing to back up everything else that they've been saying, that that's when the issues come. And I mean, we'll talk about it, but like that is when it really blew up under their ownership. I mean, listening to you tell that story there, it's almost chilling. It reminds me of what happened at Leeds under Golf Finance House. I don't know if you remember the Bahraini bank that that took over from Ken Bates. And basically, you're talking about people who are clueless and potless but they've got really good PR. They win over the fans with grand promises of how they're going to make everything great, but they have neither the knowledge or the money to actually action it. And you end up in a disastrous situation where they're basically trying to sell the club before they've even bought it. And it sounds very, very similar. And that's just a recipe for disaster and uncertainty. And in in Leeds' case, as we've heard in season one, you end up with Massimo Cellino, a convicted fraudster coming in and and more chaos upon chaos. Whereas in this situation, you've got these guys with a one-season plan, no money, it all falls down. And a few days after that May 29 playoff loss, you've got Charlie Methven saying, Stuart said last summer, I never want to be in a position where as a board we're not able to meet the aspirations of the supporters. And then you've got Donald himself saying, let's be clear, we're not in that position we can fund the football club now without getting into too many legal difficulties I would have to say now looking back on those statements that that is simply a lie and that they did not have the money to adequately fund the football club at that point and this is before things start to unravel even more yeah I mean like the podcast that I was said on <laughs> Stuart Donald actually named me on that podcast and essentially like kind of called into question like my own qualifications and that because I'd had the temerity to say, well, 
there's money disappeared from the club? Why has money been loaned out of the club at a time when we all knew that the club desperately needed it? Which I don't know about you two, but I, I think that's a very fair question. And instead of getting like a, what I deemed to be a reasonable answer, I got a load of like kind of guff and sort of, oh, we'll talk about this later. And then basically what I would call it a Twitter pylon. He kind of, it wasn't just, look, I'm not, not making this about myself. It wasn't just me. There was, there was plenty of other people who questioned things, but somebody said to me recently, why do you think that he, he actively pulled you up on it? Cause you never, I'm, well, I, you'll see like people tweet at club owners or whatever and that, and they'll get a reply. Whereas this wasn't what happened. I would be talking to someone else and something would get said by Stuart Donald. I said, well, ostensibly because it was too close to the bone, like in the end. And they didn't want the kind of, like I've said, they didn't want the web to unravel. Like I see on, on our podcast, I mean, truthfully looking back, it was shameful. They shouldn't, they shouldn't have been allowed to do it, but I, I suppose this is what happens when, um, when fans are won over and they, they really were, good at kind of engendering an us against them mentality. And so the, the problem that you had was any sort of criticism, no matter how well-founded in fact, they would fire back with something which you couldn't necessarily disprove. So for example, so when we see like accounts from the club, they're basically, they're nearly a year out of date. They're about eight or nine months out of date. So it's very easy for them to say, oh, you'll see in a few months, like we put in this, we, we pay back everything we've loaned and that. And, and then by the time you find out that that's not necessarily true, we've moved on to the next crisis or whatever. And In terms of you sort of pointing out about Donald and Meth and the Emperor's new clothes, that you're calling them out on the stuff that's wrong, that they haven't got any money. I mean, that personally got you into a few confrontations, didn't it? Can you tell us a bit about legal threats, even about the police being involved at one point? Yeah, I mean, like like I say, I don't want to, I don't want to make this about myself. I wasn't I certainly wasn't the only one. I certainly wasn't the first one. I think I was just the one who, for whatever reason, Stuart Tunnel took umbrage with. Like yeah. I remember actually the first thing he took umbrage with was um, me in a separate conversation with someone on Twitter, um was saying that my understanding being that it wasn't the manager directing the sign of Will Grigg. And he came out and said that was a load of rubbish. Now there's evidence on the most streamed platform in the world that, that it plainly wasn't the manager directing the sign. I'm not saying the manager didn't want him, but it got to a point where the money was too daft and it was directed by someone else sort of thing. Yeah. For whatever reason, he took, took on bridge with me. And I remember when the Mark Campbell deal fell through, um, this yard said because also what would frequently happen was something would get reported in a newspaper um, often in a newspaper that um, it, it was never in like say like no, local newspapers which like fans would have an issue with seeing they were talking rubbish it would often be like like the Daily Mail or the Sun there would be newspapers that fans had no no qualms just saying well that's a load of rubbish and so it came out that um the Mark Hamill deal was off and I said something along the lines of this will get quashed, the proof will be in the pudding sort of thing. And he basically took exception to that. And obviously you, you get like a, quite a big influx of people kind of <laughs> having a go. And um, and to be fair, I, I replied and just said, oh yeah, like nice guy, like so much for being a nice guy, like just encouraging a pile on the next, the next day I got an apology and um and it said he was going to take a leave of absence from Twitter to reconsider his conduct. And this is Donald. Now, yeah, this is the owner of the football club is going to take a leave of absence from social media to consider his own behaviour towards fans of the club he owns. Yeah, I mean but, that's pretty special, isn't it? Yeah, but then four weeks later, uh, we had a home friendly against 
Dutch side Herenveen. And he, he did a pre-match kind of talking. And he actually did it with a couple of lads who like I do the Wise Men's podcast with. Safe to say I was not on the presenting team. And um, somebody, in when they did the Q&A bit at the end, somebody stood up and said, look, why did you go off Twitter? And he said, oh, well, basically... I left my laptop open and my daughter saw somebody like handing out threats to burn our house down. And I just thought it's not worth the bother. I'm going to come off. And I'll... and that was what the new narrative became. The new narrative became that Sunderland fans were abusing the owners, were like threatening the owners all the time. Now, because we have to be careful what we say, I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but nobody has ever presented evidence of that happening. And it's also directly opposed to the story that he gave to myself a month earlier. But yeah, but basically... I mean, we're fast-forwarding quite a bit here, but last summer, it was July last year, I got a phone call from someone claiming to be from Thames Valley Police. And now, so I said, okay, well, what's the complaint? And it had been registered by Stuart Donald. But the complaint was malicious communications. And my understanding at the time, anyway, of malicious communications was like threatening behaviour. And I said, well, I certainly... And it was like, no, no, he's saying what you've done is you've presented stuff as fact that you know to be untrue. And I said, well, okay, like, if, if he thinks that, that's fine. But everything I've said, I believe, can be backed up with fact or something that I believe is verifiable. And I said, what exactly is it that I've said? And the police officer said, well, we don't have that yet. What? We would recommend. Yeah, exactly. And he said, we would recommend that you refrain from tweeting or talking publicly until we receive the evidence. I think that was the word. He said they were compiling evidence. There was quite a lot. Right. So I was like, well, your first reaction is, well, okay, that's, that's really quite strange. And yeah, you're like, well, oh, is this serious? And then you think about it and you're like, well, actually, I haven't said anything that isn't out in the public eye and isn't verifiably true. Later that day, went on Twitter and saw that other fans had received phone calls from the same police officer I don't know the ins and outs of those phone calls, but ostensibly it seemed like the majority had received them for um, calling Stuart Donald, shall we say, not the nicest terms on social media or whatever. Um, so that then you look and you think, well, this feels like it is just an attempt to kind of get people to shut up. A couple of weeks went by, I didn't hear anything. And it, essentially, long story short, it got to the point where I was actively ringing Thames Valley Police <laughs> to get an update because I was like, well, I want to know what, I, yeah. what I'm supposed to have said wrong. Four months went by, and then the day news was first reported that they were close to, to finally selling the club, which they actually have done, I got a text message. from. I didn't even get a phone call. I got a text message saying uh, he's decided he doesn't want to pursue it any further. And so you look at that and... You got a I text message someone, from the police? Yeah. Telling you that the outgoing owner of your football club is no longer going to pursue charges against you that you were never given any details of in the first place. Pretty much. Which rumbled on for four months in the middle of a worldwide pandemic when you think, when the police clearly have something better to be doing anyway. Blimey. But, I mean, I certainly don't think I'm a unique. I might be the only one who's actively talking about it, but these were the kind of tactics that were being employed. And it, and it leaves a very sour taste. It actually it, it makes it quite hard to support your football club. So last season, 2019-20, finish eighth. Things in a total mess still. They're trying to scrub. I mean, <laughs> there's so much more that we could go into, but perhaps we should. I was going to say we could be here all all day. <laughs> but I mean, basically, they're writing off monies that they've borrowed from the club to buy it, having previously promised to pay it back. Then last summer, 
there's um there's a thing about a ridiculous attempt to sort of squeeze money out of the fans with the season tickets in a pandemic and now we're we're in the 2021 season and 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 things have looked up without going into too much detail basically 1920 was chaos 2021 has largely been chaos as well they've proved themselves completely hopeless owners but finally they're no longer there can you sort of sum up what a relief that has been and how that happened. Yeah, but I mean, like I said before, um, everything that had gone on, even that I think like like people people I know who just weren't necessarily involved on a kind of personal level as as I became over a period of time, I found it quite difficult to um, to follow because in a way it, it was like the worst kept secret was that the idea was to get promoted to the championship and sell. Like, and... The problem with that is like if you're just scraping up to the championship, then handing it off to the first guy who gives you the money that you want, it doesn't fill you with any great confidence for like the long-term future of your football club. Now, with respect to the, the takeover that has finally completed, I mean, just before the season started, a story leaked to local radio that um, they're in discussions to sell the club. It was very close, probably be completed before the start of the season. Now, the takeover rumbled on until middle of February this year. So you're talking, what, like six, seven months really between. So clearly at the, at the time, there was very little going on or anything going on was in very preliminary stages. I think, to be honest, like when Kirill Louis-Dreyfus's name first came out, it, it, it was kind of a relief because you were like, well, actually there, there is something concrete to this. Now, in November, there was a concern that while there was this new guy coming in, um, it was very much being directed by Charlie Methvin. Like he was still going to have a role of influence and this new guy was going to come in and just put the money in. Now, I don't know that it was as simple as that, but that, that was the concern. Now, and is Methvin still around at all? So he's a, he's still got his 6% in shares. Right. And in the initial instance, but my understanding was that he was looking to be quite involved over time. That has changed to the point that he might have still have 6% of shares. Stuart Donald still has 15% of shares. And Juan Satori, who we haven't mentioned, mm. um, still has 20% of shares. But all of the decision-making and all of the influence rests with like the new guy. So they still own 40% between them? Well, it's never been confirmed, but it was reported, and I think it was accurate, that they own collectively 41%. And I think, going back to what you initially said, yeah, like it's a, it's a huge relief. I mean... There have been huge changes at the club just in the last three months, really. Um, we've gone from not having like a head of the academy, not having a head of recruitment, not having a data team or a head of the data team, not having a, I can't even list all the positions that were allowed to like fall by the wayside and have now been filled. So, so the news guy is good. Or too early to tell. But this is the problem, you see, because obviously, like, if I'd been on here two and a half years ago, I might be sitting saying, shoot down, Charlie Messvin are great, because they were <laughs> telling us everything we wanted to hear. Now, I do feel there's there's some subtle differences, like, whereas when they came in, there was very much like, oh, we're going to have the biggest budget in League One and this, that, and the other. The new guy who's come in has actually said, look, there's a big job to do here. If things don't go according to plan, we all need to stick together. Like we need to be patient. And he, he's essentially said that going up this season would be a bit of a bonus, which 
to some people might be like, well, no, we should definitely be getting out. But I think what he's trying to do is highlight like the size of the job at hand. So yeah, I mean, he's, he's ticking all the boxes so far. And there's, there's been a real feel good factor around the place since he came in. I think it's been helped by the fact they've been winning games. Um, but I'm loath to say, yeah, it's a new dawn because we've, we've very much been here before, but um, it does at least feel like the person they've handed it off to, they have actually handed it off to someone who's suitable for the club. The only depressing thing there is that they've still got 41% between them and presumably they want to hang in there while somebody else invests and gets the club back to the Premier League and then they sell out for a massive profit and get what they wanted all along. Yeah, I think most of them fans would agree that it looks to all and sundry like the club... to. Like certainly Stuart Donald is basically like a pension pot. Like he's got his fifteen percent or whatever, and and he wants to cash that out. And at some point, it's plainly apparent that they're not cut out for the kind of rough and tumble of a club like Sunderland. And that probably reels them out of a lot of other clubs as well. So I think for anyone who's concerned about that, that minority shareholder, that that's probably how you, you kind of comfort yourself with it. Well, I for one, I'm thoroughly depressed. <laughs> How do you think I feel? I've lived through it. <laughs> I'm really scared now because I'm just thinking they're going to turn up at Birmingham. <laughs> I knew this episode was not going to be full of laughs, but I didn't expect to feel so bad. But it has happened in so many clubs. But I think it's an important message to do because so many people like me watch the Netflix documentary and sort of see them as like, when you mentioned the World Greek thing, it's sort of like, you know, harmless, goofy owners, like, oh, frivolously putting the money away. But then not to let the malicious side of it, I think it's very important to tell. Well, Chris, I'd like to say thank you for all your time today. And on the basis of uh, the comparisons with Leeds, I look forward to having you back in the Premier League under Marcelo Bielsa in about 2029 <laughs> 30. Just on the last year, I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Series 2 of Football Uncovered. If you want to help us out even more, go over to iTunes, give us a rating of five stars and a review. It helps us out enormously. And if you want to go and follow Nick Harris, go over to Sporting Intelligence. And yeah, we'll see you soon. Cheers. <laughs>